Atamarie, good morning. Boy, this is low. <laughs> I have a problem being tall and having bifocals. That picture is a painting um, that was done probably about 20 years ago, I think. It's of a Pakistani woman in those massive floods that um, went through Pakistan. I think it's about 20 years ago, something like that. Um, and it's called Cry, and it seems to fit very well with, I think, the woman that we're going to meet fairly shortly in Lamentations. So let's jump into this book, Lamentations chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. How lonely sits the city that once was full of people, like a widow she has become. Um, she that was great among the nations, she that was a princess among the provinces, has become a vassal. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has no one to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile with suffering and hard servitude. She lives now among the nations and finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to the festivals. All her gates are desolate, her, people, her priests groan, her young girls grieve, and her lot is bitter. Her foes have become the masters. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has made her suffer for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captive before the foe. From door to Zion has departed all her majesty. Her princes have become like stags that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wanderings all the precious things that were once hers in days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was no one to help her, her foes looked on mocking over her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously, so she has become a mockery. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanliness was in her skirt. She took no thought of her future. Her downfall was appalling with none to comfort her. O oh Lord, look on my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. Enemies have stretched out their hands over all her precious things. She has even seen the nations invade her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her peoples groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O oh Lord, and see how worthless I have become. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which has brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day 
of his fierce anger. Now, if you think that is bad, read through much of the rest of this book called Lamentations. There's a very good reason it's called the darkest book in the Bible, which begs the question, why am I preaching on it today, next week and a fortnight later? Well, other than Jan actually started off a whole series of things back in April, um, here are five reasons, and we'll see them as we journey through this book. First, it's the longest lament in the Bible, and it shows us how to pray when the dark clouds of suffering and pain and agonizing distress roll upon us as they inevitably will. Second, Lamentations displays the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God, something we tend these days to water down at our peril. Third, it gives Christians a voice in suffering, showing us how to pray when we're confronted with the horror of images on our TV screens and the pain of sin and its effects on society and on us. Fourth, it provides hope, deepening our understanding of where to find hope while facing the agony of hardship and suffering. And finally, it doesn't end in resolution. We have to turn elsewhere in the Bible for that. But Lamentation shows us how to trust even when the immediate future remains uncertain and difficult as it so often does. I've lived through lamentations for probably the last six months or so. It's very dark, it's uncomfortable, it's hard to read, but it deals with the darkness and the storms of life we all go through. It makes us wrestle with the questions we wouldn't otherwise wrestle with. And it helps us to prepare for a move through dark clouds ahead. For life is full of storms. Hopefully we will not face what the people of this book faced, although there are a number of striking similarities with what's happening presently in the Gaza Strip and in Ukraine and elsewhere. But many of you have lived through the earthquakes, through the mosque shootings. North Islanders have faced Cyclone Gabriel. There's been the COVID pandemic. Some of you will have faced cancer diagnoses, fatal car or industrial accidents, sudden unemployment, the hurt when leaders we trusted fail, when churches divide, when friends turn on us. Life is often full of pain. For no matter what happens, life's storms will come and batter us, and we will want to cry out to God in the darkness, for it's too much. It's so unfair. And on Sunday, when we come to church to worship God along with others, we're asked to join in the praise songs and look happy. Now, there's nothing wrong with such songs. It was great we sang them earlier in the service, but there are times and for some of you today, this may be such a time 
when the storms of life leave us feeling anything but thankful to God. Indeed, we may be feeling very angry with Him. And it's not that we question God's sovereignty or God's ultimate goodness or even God's existence. No, He's still the God we know, the God we love, the God we trust, even when we don't understand. But when such things happen, we can't pretend to be happy and joyful. We need the tears to fall. We need to grieve. We need to shout out our questions. We need to lament. And that's something we're not very good at doing. A lament is a prayer expressing sorrow, pain, or confusion. It's a way of processing grief and pain in God's presence. But we don't do lament, or at least not as part of our regular or even occasional Christian worship, which is very strange when you think about it, because there are lots of laments in the Bible, and we're supposed to be Bible Christians. Look through the Old Testament and you'll find that the people of Israel certainly believed in God's sovereignty and God's goodness absolutely. They celebrated often with songs of praise. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. They sang that 26 times in Psalm 136. But that doesn't mean that they were happy, clappy all the time. Far from it. For many of the Psalms, they, they are laments of protests. They pour out their confusion because they know that God is big enough to take it. And so they beat their fists on God's chest in agony and in anger. People like Jeremiah or Job complained about injustice and cried out under suffering, whether their own or other people's. They brought all their ills of the world and piled them up at God's door and challenged God to do something about them if he really was the God of justice and compassion that they knew he was. And here we have this book of Lamentations, which God has put into our Bibles. A whole book that speaks out of pitch black darkness and speaks even today for those who find themselves in darkness and facing the storm. Yes, it's very much for a book for today to help us keep on living by faith as a Christian in all the midst of all the questions that come upon us in the darkness and storms of life. So join me over the next three Sunday mornings as we journey through it. So what's the background of this book of Lamentations? Why was it written? Well, Jeremiah tells us in the last chapter of his book, about 600 years before Christ, the tiny little kingdom of Judah rebelled against the mighty empire of Babylon, a bit like Hamas attacking Israel four weeks ago. The king of Babylon and his armies attacked and laid siege to Jerusalem. And for 18 months, the city held out, ravaged by hunger and disease, where even the rich were scavenging for food. 
Emaciated children died in the streets or in their mother's arms in the extremities of the starvation. Finally, the city fell. The Babylonian soldiers poured in, raping, ravaging, slaughtering young and old without mercy. They raided and robbed the holiest of holy places in God's temple itself. They set fire to it and set fire to the whole city. And those who survived are dragged off on a forced march into exile in Babylon, 1,600 kilometers away, leaving the rubble of their precious city smoldering behind them. And out of that cauldron of appalling destruction, death and trauma, this book of Lamentations emerges. It's an eyewitness account of what happened written in poetry. Four out of five chapters go through the whole Hebrew alphabet as if to say, look, here's what we suffered. Every last bit from A through to Z. It's an outpouring of raw grief, pain, anger and despair, begging us to read us to look when really we can hardly bear to look. It pleads with us not to turn away and pass by. It challenges us to pay attention to suffering, to enter into the darkness, and to give respect and dignity to those who are in the midst of it. It gives voice to pain. It calls us to listen without rushing to explain or to sympathize or prescribe spiritual painkillers. This book is a bottle for the tears of the world. The poet portrays the city of Jerusalem as a woman. Daughter Zion, she's called. But as we meet her in chapters 1 and 2 this morning, she's desolate, desperate, sickening sight. She's groveling, groaning in the dust, filthy, half-naked. She's been gang-raped and is badly winded. She begs God to look and see what she has suffered, pleading with God to look because no one else will. Four times in those two chapters, she cries out, Look, Lord! Look, Lord! And she stretches out her hands for pity, but finds no one to comfort her. The poet knows why this has happened. He tells us in verses 5 and 8, God has made her suffer for the multitude of her sins. Jerusalem has sinned greatly, and so she has become unclean. And daughter Zion also knows this. For in verses 18 and 22, she says, The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. You have dealt with me because of all my sins. And we know this for all we have to do is to read the books of kings and the books of the prophets and see how for centuries and for generation after generation, Israel has lived in rebellion and disobedience to the living God, their creator and redeemer. And they've done this in spite of all the warnings and all the pleadings to change their ways. Now their own sheer political folly in rebelling against Babylon in the first place, has brought upon them the wrath of the Babylonian Empire and through that the judgment of God. 
But what then? Do we just shrug and say, well, that's okay. They deserved it. But we can't do that. This book won't let us wrap things up like that, all neat and tidy. But the suffering is just too great. The suffering too intense. The war crimes cry out to heaven. And God sees them and God will call them to account. But when God's judgment in human history is mediated through evil people such as the brutal Babylonian Empire, the violence engulfs those who least deserve it. Terrified, traumatized children dying in their mother's arms. And that's the terrible tension of this book. The tension between our heads and our hearts. Our heads know the reason for God's judgment on sin. Our hearts cry out in pain and pity for this sobbing, brutalized woman. Even when we put this awful event into the perspective of God's judgment on human sin and folly as we must, it doesn't silence this book, nor the poet, nor daughter Zion. God lets the tears fall. God lets the angry words be spoken. And God lets it be recorded in our Bibles. So we need to listen. For one day we may well need this book. The poet of Lamentations calls on us to use our imagination. And in chapters 1 and 2, he sets out a dialogue between himself and daughter Zion, the city of Jerusalem. And in chapter 1 of the first half of, up to the first half of verse 11, the poet describes how far daughter Zion, or Jerusalem, has fallen from her previous glory, and how her beauty has been reduced in extreme starvation in the siege. And all her people groan as they search for bread. They even barter their children for food to keep themselves alive. And for Israel, the worst is probably what the poet describes in verse 10. When the looting and lustful Babylonian soldiers penetrated daughter Zion's inner sanctum, the most holy places of the Lord's temple, she saw pagan nations enter her sanctuary. Those you, God, have forbidden to enter your congregation. How can God allow what God himself has prohibited? In the remainder of chapter 1, daughter Zion cries out from the dust where she lies, sometimes calling out to God, sometimes just to anyone who will listen, though nobody seems to be paying attention. Look, O Lord, and see how worthless I have become. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. In chapter 2, the poet takes over. And up until chapter 10, he describes in graphic detail how God has smashed down every part of the nation's life. The cities, the buildings, the temple, the kings, the priests, the prophets, the old people, young people, women are all brought down in the dust. And then in verse 11, he turns again to speak directly to daughter Zion and tells her his heart is broken, his stomach is churning for the suffering children especially. 
My eyes are spent with weeping because infants and babes faint in the streets of the city as their lives are poured out in their mother's arms. Finally, when he feels he can offer daughter Zion no more real comfort of his own, he pleads with her to cry out to God himself. But she's already done this three times in this book. But maybe, just maybe, one last desperate tribe will get a response. And so he urges her, cry out for your children at least, if not for yourself. Their tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to turn, lift your hands to him from the light for the lives of your children who faint for hunger in the head of every street. Well, daughter Zion listens to the poet and speaks again. But her words are not so much a prayer as a protest. She knows she has sinned. She knows that God is doing this as an act of judgment. But hasn't it all gone too far? Hasn't God crossed over a line? That's the almost unthinkable emotion in the three shocking questions, look, O Lord, and consider, to whom have you done this? Should women eat their offspring, the children they have born? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? No, of course not, we want to answer. Such things should never happen. But they did. Daughter Zion can't get her head around it. But then can we? Our world is still full of the same kind of obscene crimes against our very humanity. Think of Gaza, Ukraine, Somalia, Nagorno-Karabakh. We're, we're often battered by the darkness and the storms of life. And all we can do is lay it there before God and lament and lament. Is there any light? Is there any hope? Is there any comfort we can take away? Well, there will be a moment of incredible hope in the middle of chapter 3. And a very powerful prayer is coming up in chapter 5. But we're not there yet. For we need to recognize the darkness, the pain that we see in our world today, to acknowledge the darkness and the pain in our own lives first before continuing the journey next week. In the meantime, here are three thoughts from these two chapters. The first is that God is silent, but he's not absent. God doesn't speak anywhere in this book of Lamentations. He lets the suffering one do all the talking. He lets her shed her tears. He lets her go over all the pain and anger again and again from A to Z. God does not interrupt. 
He doesn't jump in with hushing sympathy or theological explanations. After all, the prophets have done all the explaining already. Now he just lets her pour it all out. God respects the voice of suffering in all its wretched repetition. And God is silent, but he is not absent. God is there listening to every word and watching every tear. And daughter Zion would know that if she remembered her own story because she knew the God of the Exodus, the God who heard the cry of the oppression, who saw their suffering. And as Isaiah tells us, in all their affliction, he too was afflicted. God was there, weeping with her, and God is still here, weeping with us. The second thought comes from what daughter Zion says in chapter 1, verse 18, though she didn't see it. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. God is in the right, but that means hope, not just judgment. In the Old Testament, when people talk about the righteousness of God, they mean God will do what is right by judging the wicked as he must, but also rescuing and saving those who cry out to him. God will be faithful to both his promises and to his threats. In the midst of all her pain and darkness, daughter Zion couldn't yet see that in his righteousness, God will comfort her in his time. The exile will end. People will come home. The city will be restored. For as God says later in Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term that her penalty is paid. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you in my righteous right hand. There is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is no one beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. The righteousness of God is good news for the rebellious sinners who turn their back to him. And that's why, jumping over to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul can say that the righteousness of God, God's saving faithfulness, is revealed in the gospel. And that brings us to a third thought. When we think about the horrendous suffering of the destruction of Jerusalem, we must remember God himself has borne even greater suffering. Jerusalem suffered under the judgment of God in the hands of murderously violent enemies and her agony was immense. But 600 years later, on the cross outside Jerusalem, God himself in the person of his son, Jesus of Nazareth, also bore the judgment of God at the hands of murderously violent enemies, and his agony was infinite. For as Jesus cried out, My God, 
My God, why have you forsaken me? He was echoing some of the words of daughter Zion. But he entered into the abyss of abandonment that was infinitely more horrendous than anything Jerusalem suffered. God in Christ bore the wrath of God on the sin of the whole world. And that's the crucial difference, isn't it? Jerusalem suffered God's judgment on their own sin, and they knew it. Jesus suffered for no sin of his own, but for ours. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. In its own way, Lamentations points us to Good Friday and the cross of Christ. We are Good Friday people, and we must bring our own Lamentations to the foot of the cross where we see the suffering face of God crucified for us. For in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. But of course, we're not just Good Friday people. We're also Good Sunday, uh, Easter Sunday people. And in Christ's resurrection is our guarantee that the day will come when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. But we're not there yet. And while we wait for that day, we need what God has given us in this book of Lamentations, words for our grief, a bottle for the tears of the world. Let's spend a couple of minutes in silent prayer and reflection as we begin to process what God's been saying to us this morning and then I'll lead us in prayer. So let's be silent.
Almighty God, we call you our loving Heavenly Father. Even though there are times when it seems hard, if not impossible, to believe it. And yet, especially in times like this, we can and we must. And so we thank you that your word in the Bible allows and encourages us to pour out our grief and our pain to you and even gives us words to do so. Help us to turn to you for comfort, for forgiveness, for salvation. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, who rose again, and who will return to put all things right, we pray. Amen. We're not going to sing a final song. People just don't write much that fits with the book of Lamentations. But I invite you to stand and we're going to join together in re reading a lament. The words will be on the screen and they come from Psalm 130. So please stand and we'll read it together. Out of the depth I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my prayer. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem you from all your sins. Amen. I realize that some of you here this morning for whom Lamentations has stirred up pain and darkness from both the present and the past. And both Doug and I will be happy to talk and pray with you or find someone else that you can trust. But if you need to talk to someone or if you need prayer, please do so. Next week, we'll continue our journey in the book of Lamentations as we explore chapter 3, Finding Hope in the Darkness. And now may God's arms enfold and protect you. God's word inform and inspire you. God's love infuse and transform you. God's spirit flow and empower you. Now and always. Amen.